Let's turn uh, in the Word of God this morning to John's Gospel in chapter 12. Thank you for the invitation and for your warm welcome, and thank you particularly for your kindness as a congregation to uh, Howell, my son, uh, as he's been fel- fellowshipping here for several years, and now your, your gracious support of him as he uh, pursues training for Christian ministry. And I bring greetings of the Lord's people in Mysokuma. It's good to see uh, folk here that come up at Easter time to our services, and uh, appreciate being with you today. John's Gospel, chapter 12. If I was to have a text, uh, it would be verse 21, where these Greeks come and say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Earlier in the passage, we read of people throwing down palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, perhaps a lot of confusion in the crowd there at Jerusalem, especially as some in the crowd were bearing witness to what had gone on in the cemetery at Bethany just earlier, and people coming to see Jesus because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And uh, the Pharisees here throwing up their arms, as it were, in despair and saying, look, it's useless, what can we do? The whole world's gone after him. Sometimes, you know, the Pharisees were right. The whole world had gone after him. Straight after that, we read of these Greeks who come to Jerusalem to worship at the feast, uh, coming and saying, we wish to see Jesus. They weren't Israelites. They weren't Jews going after him. These were Gentiles coming uh, after him, Greeks. And the Pharisees were right. The world was going after him. And uh, we see then Philip coming with this request from them. We would see Jesus. What a lovely desire that is. I hope that when you came in through the doors this morning, you had the same desires to see Jesus. Now, the Christ we see here in in chapter 12 of John's Gospel is the Christ of the cross. Jesus Christ, who is he and what's he like? Well, first of all, we see he is a Christ to whom we may come. He's a Christ we may come to. Look at verses 20 through 24 and verse uh, 32. These Greeks come to Philip. Philip goes to Andrew. Andrew tells Jesus. Greeks have come saying, we want to see Jesus. We want to speak with him. And we're told, we're not told if they heard Jesus answer, but Jesus does really answer them. He says there in verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What does glorified mean? Well, in in the Gospel of John, the word glorified uh, primarily refers to the death of the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. What does that mean? Well, he's comparing his life to a grain of wheat. And if you keep a grain of wheat and put it on the table at home or on a shelf and it stays there, it remains a grain of wheat. But cast it into the earth, cast it into some soil, and it will germinate and it will bring forth a crop. Jesus says there in verse 24, if if it dies, it produces much grain. And Jesus is about to die. And if he dies, like a grain of wheat, says Jesus, then I shall bring forth much fruit. And not just Jewish fruit, but Greek 
Gentile fruit also, like these Greeks coming up now to the temple to worship. They'd come up to the temple to worship. It's likely that they were not converts to Judaism, but were attracted to Judaism. They're what uh, the rest of the New Testament refers to as God-fearers. That's probably who these are. And they come up to Jerusalem at Passover to worship, and coming up, they reach the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, on the periphery of the temple complex. A little nearer to the heart of the temple was the court of women, that is, Israelite women. But then, when non-Jewish people came up to worship, they could get no closer than the court of the Gentiles, out there on the periphery. And separating the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple was a wall. And at every passing point through that wall was a notice, a death threat to anyone passing that point who was a Gentile. And it was a death threat that was upheld also by Rome. Now these Greeks, these non-Jews, coming uh, uh, up to Jerusalem are coming to see Jesus. And perhaps the point of the question is to answer uh, the question, is Jesus any different from Judaism? Will he only receive Israelites? Is he a Jewish saviour only? Or will he also have dealings with Gentiles, with Greeks? Can he be our Christ as well? Can we come to Jesus Christ? That's the question. They knew what it was like to go to the temple courts and to be able to approach only so far. On pain of death, they could go no further. But what about Jesus? Will Jesus receive Gentiles? And so Jesus says, When I die, I will bring forth much fruit, much fruit, and not just Jewish fruit, but Gentile fruit also. And then he makes it clearer still in verse 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. What does that mean? Well, plainly, he doesn't mean, does he, every single individual. It's not all people without exception. But in this context of the Greeks coming and inquiring, asking about Jesus, in the context it means all without distinction. I will draw all kinds of people to me, he says. I will not just draw the Jews, God's Old Testament covenant people. I'll also draw Greeks, Gentiles to me. And notice one of the implications of what Jesus says here is that it is not that people will come on their own. People don't come to Jesus Christ on their own initiative. But he says, I will draw them. I draw them in my death to myself. There'll be an attractive power in the cross, he's saying uh, to his disciples here. And I will make them willing to come. I'll draw all kinds of people to myself, to me. Not to the temple, not to religion, not to some code of ethics, but to myself. He's the centre. They'll have communion with me. And I want to say today, we may come to Christ. Jesus didn't say, I am the barrier. He didn't say, I am the fence. He said, I am the door. And if he is drawing you, if he is drawing you, 
then come, come to him. He receives all who come to him. The second thing we see here is a Christ who demands the ultimate sacrifice. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus goes on to say what his being the one who gives up his life, laying down his life in death, what that means for his disciples, for his followers. He says, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The first part of verse 25 can be translated, the one who loves his life destroys it. That in the very process of loving our lives, of doing everything possible to preserve myself, to keep myself, to nurture myself, the very process will destroy me, he says. Jesus describes his own disciples as people, as people who come with a higher priority than merely preserving and sustaining and keeping themselves, making the preservation of our own life, cuddling ourselves, cushioning ourselves, caring for ourselves, planning always for our own welfare, focusing on that, always focusing on that, our own preservation, our own success, our own comfort. That's a real temptation to us, isn't it? We are all faced by that. And Jesus says, those who follow a Lord who, like a grain of wheat, falls into the ground and dies, they don't count the preservation of their own life as the highest priority in life. But rather, in comparison to that, they hate their lives in this world. What does it mean then not to love your life well, Jesus describes those people in verse 26. He says, they are those who serve him and follow him. And if you're familiar with John's gospel, you'll know that to follow Jesus in John's gospel means to follow Jesus to such an extent that you are willing to give your life for him if circumstances demand it. It is literally taking up a cross to follow him, and in the first century, you only took up a cross for one reason. You were following him to death. Now, whether it calls for that or not, this is a description of the people of Jesus. They serve him and they follow him, whatever that may eventually cost. And that means that they are people who don't have as the top priority in their life the preservation of their own life and the cosseting of themselves and the preserving of themselves. If they serve and follow Jesus, what matters most to them is what Jesus wants. That's all that matters to them. And that's a costly exercise. But notice in verse 26 that the Lord Jesus gives us a great incentive for this life. He says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honour. And anyone who responds then to these incentives is saying that what matters to them supremely is 
the presence of Jesus Christ. Where I am, he says, there my servant will be also. And anyone who serves Jesus, who doesn't love his own life, by making that the top priority, anyone like this is saying, nothing matters more to me than being in the presence of Jesus, and nothing matters more to me than having the Father's honour. Not the backslapping, not the kudos that can come to us in the world, but having the honour that the Father gives. That's the priority. That's what matters. So who are these people who follow Jesus? Who are they? They're not just a, a group of people who belong to some weird religious uh, order. Uh, they are just people who say with the Apostle Paul, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. And some of those people are housewives, and some of them are office workers, and some are teachers, and some are welders, and some are in prison, and some are widows, and some are students, and so on. But they serve this demanding Christ. And what matters to them most is not preserving themselves, but what Jesus Christ wants, and knowing the presence of Christ, and the honour of God the Father. Jesus Christ is a Christ who demands the ultimate sacrifice. Then notice thirdly, the Christ we see here is Christ in distress. In verse 27, we find these strange words, Now my soul is troubled. What's going on there? What do those words mean? Don't these words of Jesus at least make you sit up and and ask the question, what does that mean? Here's one who John calls the Word, the one who has ever been in fellowship with the Father, a face-to-face -face fellowship with the Father, one who in his very nature is God, the one who said, all men must honour me as they honour my Father, the one who said, I and the Father are one, we are one in the closest possible unity, and so on. And here, this one says, now my soul is troubled. He's in turmoil. He's in distress. He's agitated as he anticipates his death. Well, what's wrong with him? Why this agitation? On the surface, it seems that many people in life and throughout history have faced death far more heroically than Jesus seemed to face death. If that's all that's involved in dying. We can find figures in history, can't we, who face death far more heroically than Jesus. So why is he troubled? Why is he agitated? Well, you can only appreciate that. Uh, what, you can only appreciate what death meant to Jesus, uh, what it involved by uh, thinking of the doctrine of imputation. This is why Jesus is agitated here. You can't explain his horror of death apart from that. That is that God placed on Jesus, as he died, the sins of his people. Isaiah 53 verse 12 tells us, he carried the sin of many. The sin, singular, of many. All of it he carried. So when Jesus suffers death, 
He's not just suffering physical death. That's bad enough. But when you face death as damnation, that's something else. And we ought to be convulsed and horrified at the very thought of it. We should shrink back from that to face death as damnation. And Jesus says, what should I pray for in this situation? Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But for this very purpose came I into the world. Then he prays, Father, glorify your name. Not Father, save me, but Father, glorify your name. But you see the kind of saviour then that we have here. One who is in great distress, a troubled saviour. You have a Christ who has been troubled deeply in his soul, struggling before the Father's will, and struggling even in his own will at this time. What are we to make of all that? Well, J.C. Ryle, the first uh, Bishop of Liverpool, helps us here when he says this, Christ's people may have much inward conflict without sin. It's a very helpful thing. Christ's people may, much, may have much inner conflict without sin. If you have a saviour who himself was troubled, who was in anguish and distress and inner conflict as he faced his unique death, then surely it teaches us at least this comforting truth, that Christ's people too may have much inner conflict of soul without sin. And some of his people need to realise that because some of them think that they should be stoical, that they should uh, have a stiff upper lip as they approach the troubles of life and they think that if they ask why or how could it possibly be and if they question God and if they struggle with the will of God that they're somehow being sinful in doing that. But here is Jesus and he says, now is my soul troubled. And I'm saying that should be a comfort to you. It should help you to see that you have a saviour like this. He's not a slab of stone. And it should help you to see that you too may have inner struggles and conflict of soul without, at the same time, uh, sinning. Does, mean, does not mean, you see, that when you're without comfort, that you're without grace, and that God has never touched your life. It doesn't mean that at all. Your life may be marked by inner warfare as well as inner peace. You have a troubled Christ, but that can be a comforting, a comforting truth. Then fourthly, notice here, a conquering, victorious Christ. In verse 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What does that mean? Well, there's a few important words there. One is the word now that's used twice. Jesus is talking about the moment when he dies and he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. What does he mean? Well, it's, it's a little bit difficult to know quite what Jesus means when he says, now is the judgment of this world. But the second part does give us a clue to help us understand. He says, now the ruler of this world is cast out 
And what Jesus means then is that by his death, he will conquer Satan. He will conquer the devil. He will defeat his enemy and break his power. He's saying that there is a worldwide cosmic victory achieved by him 2,000 years ago as he expired on the cross of Calvary that first Good Friday. But then you will naturally ask, but isn't Satan still at work? Isn't evil still a force and a power in the world? Aren't God's people still being tempted and afflicted and oppressed and so on? Well, there's a clear principle to be found in the New Testament that we sometimes call the already not yet principle. Let me illustrate it like this. Uh, back at Mysokoma, we sometimes in our public worship use the Apostles' Creed. And uh, you'll remember that in the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is already achieved. And it means that from his crucifixion uh, to when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father, the place of supreme power and authority and rule in the universe that Jesus has already conquered, that he already reigns as king, already reigning now in heaven. Well, what about the not yet then? Well, that comes next. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. That's future. That's the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And how do we relate those things? Well, the, the, the point is that Jesus has already won the victory, but there's a final battle yet to come and to be fought. And you can win the war and still have battles to fight. In, uh, in the West, in the Ardennes offensive, uh, in the Second World War and in the East, the Battle of Stalingrad, those two great engagements defeated the Nazi war machine. And though there were many battles fought after those two great offensives, there was really from that point on absolutely no possibility whatever of the Nazis being victorious. They were defeated. There were many battles still to be fought. And the New Testament tells us then that the decisive victory in which Jesus broke the back of Satan's power occurred at Calvary. That victory has been won. The ruler of this world has been cast out. That doesn't mean that he no longer has any influence in the world. But the victory has been won. And when Jesus comes again on the last day, that's just to be, as it were, a mopping up uh, operation. We sometimes fear the man of sin and what the New Testament tells us about him. But never forget how that passage continues. Whom he shall destroy with the brightness of his coming and the word of his mouth. He will simply appear and the majesty of Jesus Christ will destroy in that very moment just his appearance, the man of sin. You have nothing to fear in that day. And what the world doesn't see today, Jesus exalted, Jesus ruling and reigning from the throne of the universe, in the last day will be made visible and imposed 
it's already, and yet it's not yet. And what that means is that Satan may still tempt you, he may harass you and trouble you, evil may still be a problem for you. But in Jesus' death, Satan's back has been broken, his kingdom broken, and he cannot hold you any longer, he cannot snatch you from the Father's hand, and he cannot lay hold of you and drag you from the kingdom of light into which the Father has brought you. I hope you realize that. I hope you realize that. It's only a one-way street between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The traffic is all one way. The Savior takes people from Satan's kingdom and brings them irresistibly into his kingdom. They never go in the other direction. Isn't that astonishing? God's kingdom, knowing constant and continual growth. Satan's kingdom being denuded. It's always that way with God. And what the realization of that does then is to give us an assurance that there is no ultimate fear or terror in the universe because our enemy has been decisively defeated. Remember how Bunyan pictures that in Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim, you remember, just coming over the hill of difficulty and uh, he's coming towards a beautiful palace uh, for rest and hospitality. But as he approaches, he sees two great lions in the way, other side of the path, and he stopped paralyzed with fear. And Bunyan tells us, the lions were chained, but they did not see, he did not see the chains. And then the porter at the gate of the palace cries out to Christian uh, that uh, he's not to be afraid, the lions are chained, simply walk in the middle of the path and no harm will come. Well, we learn something similar here. The lion is chained. You may not always see the chain that's on Satan. The devil roars, but he's chained. He's on Jesus' leash. He's been on his leash since Calvary. So he's a victorious Christ who casts out final fear for his people. Finally, what is Christ like? Well, he's a Christ who is unafraid to offend. In verse 34, the crowd, realizing that Jesus has been talking about his death, respond to him, saying, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Our idea of Messiah, they're saying, from Daniel chapter 7, from Isaiah chapter 9, and so on, is that he's going to have an everlasting dominion. So how can you say he's going to die? Who is the Son of Man? Are we missing something here? That's what they're saying to Jesus. And what they're saying then is that a dying Savior just doesn't fit with their understanding of Messiah. And you can be bothered by that if you're not a Christian. Some are bothered by it who are Christians. And, and many are when they first begin to think seriously about the Christian faith and about the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a certain conception of Jesus and they're disturbed to find that he just doesn't seem to fit into the categories that they they have and so when they meet the real Jesus it's a bit of a shock that's what's happening here verse verse 34 uh, he says you say the son of man must be lifted up who is this son of man how can you say these things when 
the Scriptures say that Christ remains forever. Notice that Jesus doesn't answer that objection. He doesn't answer the question. He simply says, a little while longer the light is with you. While you have the light, uh, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believing the, uh, the light that you may be sons of light. What does that mean? Well, he doesn't answer their objection. He doesn't clear up their misunderstanding. He doesn't stop to explain things to them. He says, while you have the light, to the degree that you see the light, while I, the light, am still with you, you need to believe the light. You need to respond to the light that you have. And that offended them. Essentially, he says to them, uh, you may indeed have quite the wrong conception about Messiah. I'm not going to meet your expectations of a Messiah. While you have me, you ought to respond to me. Respond to the light you have while you still have it. So there's an urgency there. And it could be that Jesus is saying to you this morning, perhaps it's the first time you've been here, perhaps you've been here many times, perhaps you're thinking seriously about the Christian faith, and maybe Jesus is saying to you, uh, this morning, you know, I'm not going to answer all those difficulties you say you have, and I'm not going to explain all these questions that you want to put. I'm not going to reserve, uh, re uh, uh, resolve all of the mysteries that you see in me. I'm not going to solve all those conundrums for you. I'm not going to make you feel comfy. The time has come for you to respond to the light that you already have now. You need to believe on me now and from that point go on to understand more and more. But I'm not going to solve all your questions. Believe the light. Believe the light. You see, you may be a lifelong Presbyterian. You may be a lifelong Baptist or whatever else. You still need to believe upon the crucified, glorified Christ the Saviour, Jesus, lest the darkness overwhelm you. Well, I hope you came today with the same request as these Greeks. We would see Jesus. And I hope, hope that you have, that you see a, a Jesus to whom all may come, everyone without distinction, a Jesus who asks of us the ultimate sacrifice, and yet to give that we find a great reward. A troubled Christ who can comfort us in our troubles. A victorious Christ who rules over all things now, who will one day be acknowledged by all. And a Christ who calls us right now into his light. Let's ask God's blessing upon us. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this glorious saviour that you've sent into the world and we pray that while we have this light we may come to the light and find in the Lord Jesus Christ that satisfaction, that fullness uh, that he offers to all. We ask these mercies for your namesake. Amen.